Okay, so this is going to be odd. I think I'm seeing everyone. Let me check. Laura, are you there? Yep. Jane, are you there? Yes. Andrew, are you there? I'm here. Well, I'll be damned. It's working. Okay, let's start. Welcome to our first ever episode of This Week in the CLE, where none of us are in the same place. We have taken the shelter-in-place advice to heart at Cleveland.com, and we are working from home, and we're handling this podcast from a variety of locations, doing it in two segments. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, sitting in my Cleveland Heights living room. On this first segment, I'm joined by co-host Laura Johnston in her Rocky River home, State House reporter Andrew Tobias in Columbus, and politics editor Jane Cahoon, Jane Cahoon a few blocks away from me in Cleveland Heights. Hello, all. Hello. Hello. Okay, so guys, this is going to be a little challenging, and not just because I'm totally afraid my kids are going to barge through the door at any time. I've given them warning. But because Chris won't be able to make that hurry-up hand gesture as he normally does to keep this thing going. So let's try not to step on each other other's toes or hands or whatever. It should go without saying that this podcast will be all about the coronavirus as it has dominated the news and our lives for the past week and looks certain to do so for a long time. We're going to break down the conversation into a bunch of categories, what hospitals are doing, what the state is doing, the latest medical research, how people are coping, and of course, what happened with our wacky would-be election day. But first, Chris, you wanted to say something to the audience, I think. Yeah, I do. I want to say thank you. The people who visit our many platforms have been incredibly kind-hearted and helpful with suggestions for stories and questions that we had not considered. Many of them are coming through our free text message alerts on the coronavirus and through my own text message account. And what we've seen is a remarkable sense of us all being in this together and wanting to work collaboratively to get through it. Characters which shows in a crisis and Northeast Ohio is showing its character We're being tested by this thing, and so far, I think it's been one of our finest hours. Okay, let's start the conversation, and let's begin it with the governor. Mike DeWine has caught the attention of the nation with his leadership and bold decision-making. He has listened to the scientists and done things no one else was doing to slow the spread of the virus. As we know, the goal is to flatten the curve, to reduce the speed at which this spreads so that hospitals can keep up with it. Every day seemed to bring a bolder announcement than the last, beginning with his announcement that he would close the schools. Jane, no other state had done that when DeWine did, correct? That's right. He was the first. He's, uh, you know, he's been out front on a number of things with this crisis. Um, he has said that the schools could end up being closed until the end of the year. And um, he, when he did this, he ordered them closed on Monday at the end of the school day. But I think many of them just did it right away. Yeah, and I think a lot of schools canceled that Friday or the Monday, and this caused a mad scramble by teachers, administrators, and parents to prepare. I saw all sorts of posts from all sorts of people just setting up a shop in their houses for their kids to go to school. Uh, It's not only to keep these kids learning, but to keep them safe. Yeah, you know, depending on their means, school districts have done a number of things, you know, sent kids home with Chromebooks or learning packets a few days of assignments to tide them over. Uh, and some like Westlake are, are ready to launch online learning. Um, and all this is happening when people like you, Laura, are working at home <laughs> and trying to supervise their kids at the same time. I've already yelled at them today to stop yelling. 
<laughs> so DeWine originally set a limit on gatherings at 100, but he's now reduced it to 50. But the big whammy, or I guess the first big whammy, came Sunday when he announced restaurants and bars had to close at the end of the day. We'll talk later with reporter Annie Nikoloff about the effect on the small businesses. So let's not get into that here. Rather, let's go into what he was thinking there. Well, uh, I'd like to quote him from one of his briefings this week, uh, at which he said, it's distance, it's distance, it's distance, it's space, it's space, it's space. Uh, you know, the virus um, depends on people to, to reproduce and spread. And, you know, we have to avoid these circumstances where people are congregating as much as possible. And bars and restaurants are one place where a lot of strangers congregate. That was a bold move, but the really bold move came 3 p.m. Monday when DeWine announced he was moving to cancel Tuesday's presidential primary election. It set into motion what could only be called chaos that did not really end until 13 hours later at 4 a.m. Andrew, you did a great piece dissecting the chaos, and for people to fully grasp it, let's take it one step at a time. DeWine's Monday briefing started an hour late. What did he say then about the election? So... Uh, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose was actually supposed to have a press conference that morning at 10 where he was going to announce some new measures that he was taking to keep the election safe. And when that one got canceled, uh, our antenna went up at that point. And we've been asking them repeatedly, is the election still on? Is, is the election still on? It's kind of a joke at that point almost. But when, uh, when the governor spoke at 3 p.m., he basically said, look, there are new CDC guidelines that we shouldn't really be having groups of larger than 10, which our guidelines and not mandatory, like you said about the 50 person limit earlier. But he essentially said, we thought a week ago that we could conduct the election safely. We no longer think that. And uh, so that was the rationale that they gave. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it was, uh, he said, we don't have the power to move the election unilaterally, but what we're going to do is not oppose some citizens who are going to be suing later today asking a judge to uh, block the election and to schedule it for a later date to, so that people wouldn't have to choose between voting and potentially risking their life. So it's odd that he said he didn't have the power to block the election, given how this ended. But let's before we get there, exactly what was the mechanism he originally was trying through the courts? So basically, they found two women who are older than 65 with, with recent health issues. Uh, they both had ties to two to wine. And, and the, the one was a former top state uh, I think it was the director of aging and the other one used to work for DeWine in the attorney general's office. And they basically said that they were fearful if they were to have to go to the polls that they might, uh, you know, uh, catch the disease and being older, they're more vulnerable. So then also furthermore, uh, a large number of poll workers on election day are older than 65 as well. So they were thinking, well, if uh, the, and the argument went that, yes, the election is constitutionally enshrined, but actually my rights would be violated if, if you allow this to go forward because it would not be a legitimate election because I'd be um, being forced to make a choice that um, I shouldn't have to make. But the judge didn't buy that. Yeah, it was really strange. I mean, this is a, a Franklin County judge uh, who normally deals with things like murder cases or, I mean, he has caught some, being in Franklin County, he's caught some higher profile state issues, but, um, you know, there were people in the courtroom wearing like tennis shoes and sweatpants, uh, the, the media was rushing in. I mean, it was very impromptu. And, but the judge basically said that, um, look, I'm just a judge in Columbus. This is a lot of responsibility. Why haven't you tried to convene an emergency session of the legislature? This is such a hugely impactful decision that you're giving to me literally hours before the election is supposed to begin. I just don't 
uh, think that this is the avenue to do this. This created the chaos. All the elections boards had accepted at the 3 p.m. announcement that there would be no election on Tuesday, and they let all their poll workers know. When the judge made this decision late, the boards went into hyperdrive trying to get the elections back into gear. I don't know how many uh, press releases came across our email saying, hey, hey, the election's on. It was pretty frantic. So the question is, why did DeWine wait until late Monday to do this? If he had done it even one day before on Sunday, it would have allowed the time to do this in a much more orderly fashion and not have the chaos. So they said that they got the new guidance that I mentioned earlier from the CDC just on Sunday night. And I think they were also watching the death tolls that were being reported from Italy, which has just been completely ravaged, like pretty much um, only only China has has seen as, as bad as it's been there. And so they felt that it was really late emerging uh, information. And so, like you said, some of the elections just assumed or the election boards assumed it was a done deal when he made the announcement in the afternoon. Uh, actually, while I was in the courtroom, media started reporting that the judge had actually ruled the opposite of what he ended up ruling just 10 minutes later. And that word made its way to the elections boards. Uh, and so and state officials basically had thought that the election was back on. And so it was just like back and forth. And um, like I said, I mean, our, our headline that we use had the word chaos in it. And I know that sounds like a melodramatic thing that political reporters like to say to try to make their stories <laughs> seem more interesting. But it, it truly was chaotic. But but there also was the problem that a bunch of the national media actually they got a hold of the the proposed order canceling the election, thought it was real and started reporting the election was off at the very time elections boards were saying, no, 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 the election's on. Mike O'Malley, the county prosecutor, was texting me that night going, how do we get the word out? This is a disaster. And it was partly because of what the national media and some, I guess, in Ohio. Right, Andrew, were reporting. Yeah, and I, I had people, you know, family members. Am I, am I voting tomorrow? I mean, I had some officials were actually like um, um, lecturing me that I got it wrong and I need to fix it. And I was very confident <laughs> that I was right because I was in there watching the judge speak. Like it was, there's no question about it. So uh, wow. yeah, it was just, I, I would have, I never have experienced anything like that in my life. So what happened after the judge rejected the request from the DeWine camp? Like what did they do? So nothing. I mean, we tried to uh, reach because, you know, I don't want to my first move isn't to call the governor directly. So I try to reach out to his people who are who their job is to field requests from us. And we heard nothing, just literally nothing. And uh, in, in retrospect, I, the next day I was able to learn that at that moment, the um, the governor, the lieutenant governor, John uh, Houston, Attorney General Dave Yost and Secretary of State Frank LaRose were all on a conference call with a bunch of lawyers. And I think mm. they were trying to figure out what they were going to and they had some, you know, do we appeal this in the state level? Do we file something with the Supreme Court? If so, what do we file there? Um, and uh, so I think they were just trying to decide what to do. I mean, like, they, I really do think they were making this up as they went. All right. So three o'clock, the election's off. And, and at what, seven, it's back on. At around 10, it's dead. Election workers have whiplash. They don't know what to do. But it still wasn't over because there were people who were furious about this, including House Speaker Larry Householder. They believed and they still believe the authority for the elections is only with the legislature. So some candidates wanted the election to go forward and they went to court and it ended up with the Ohio Supreme Court and it went on all night, right? Yeah, I should say around 10 o'clock, uh, the health director, Amy Acton, ended up issuing a public health order basically saying, uh, I mean, the, the rationale, I guess, 
underlying that is that we can't move the election, but we can close the election polls so that nobody can vote and kind of force the issue. And so uh, that's when I went to bed. That's kind of where the status quo was that night. But um, around the time that the Franklin County judge denied the order or that I mentioned that was around seven o'clock, a, a local candidate near Toledo running for a, a judicial office filed that uh, a case with the Supreme Court. And once the DeWine administration issued that health order, the court, which was not in a particular hurry to do anything with the Wood County, which is the county where that happened, a complaint, suddenly they said, okay, this issue is actually pertinent. We need to give the state until 1.30 a.m. to respond to this. And uh, my understanding in in talking to people is that uh, some of the justices basically were sitting by their phones uh, trying to get some sleep and then just made sure they had their ringers on so that when they got the call. And what happened was ultimately... Uh, at 4 a.m., they they issued a ruling d- d- dismissing the complaint, which didn't directly have to do with the health order. But had they accepted it, they could have uh, blocked the I, I don't even know what that would have done, honestly, but uh, they could have blocked the state from moving the election. And uh, but lo and behold, they didn't. And as of 4 a.m., literally uh, two and a half hours before the polls opened, we knew there was no election. OK, so no election day. But DeWine, who has been applauded for his great leadership on the crisis, kind of stumbled here. Did he um, express any regrets later? Yeah, and I think that something that really happened through all of this is that you, uh, when you're a governor asking people to make these huge changes in their lives and potentially affecting people's livelihoods, you really have to trust that the state knows what it's doing. And I think that when you have something like this happen, I think people just lose trust, and and that's really important. Uh, and so uh, DeWine basically acknowledged that, yeah, this was kind of a big mess, and he essentially said that, uh, and I don't have his quote in front of me, but... Um, I wish we would have done this differently. I think that they were hoping that the court would give them sort of like a, uh, some better legal cover to do what they did. Um, he's basically said, because they ultimately decided to close the polls through a health order, I think they decided they, uh, they he wished that they would have done that at first. But I, he basically said, we're just, this is an unprecedented situation dealing with, that we're dealing with. We're trying to do our best. And ultimately, uh, the election was off and we avoided people getting exposed to potentially a dangerous illness. I mean, you see in the other states that continue with their election, like Illinois and Florida, there was uh, reports of unsanitary conditions. Uh, I read that they were basically sending 17-year-old kids to work the polls with no, literally no training. I mean, it was just very chaotic yeah. in the other states. You know? Yeah, so. I, I, I don't. I don't think many people would disagree, a few, but many would disagree that it was a good idea not to have it. I do think that there's some validity to the suspicion that he waited until the 11th hour to prevent the householders of the world um, from thwarting him. But And that did create chaos we didn't need. Anyway, so schools, restaurants, bars, elections, but DeWine wasn't done, right? Next, he closed gyms and health clubs, bowling alleys, indoor swim parks. And Wednesday, he finally closed something down our audience has asked about continuously, barbers and hairstylists, nail salons, tattoo parlors, Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and the driver license offices. There's not a whole lot left he can close down. Um, so what do you think, Jane? Well, you're right. Our our audience was way ahead on this one. They, they kept asking us, like, why is the BMV still open there, you know? notorious for having crowds of people in there. So uh, they kept raising the issue and lo and behold, it happened. So I guess malls are the only thing left right now. Right now, And we've definitely been asking about them. So maybe they're next. We've been asking about home healthcare nurses who so far have not been required to wear masks and gloves. Do we think that's going to come? It seems like DeWine's running out of things he can close. 
Well, the, the governor keeps saying that he's taking one step at a time, and, and that's what he's been doing. Incrementally, you know, more and more restrictions are, are coming. I think but, he's been reading all the stories that we post on Cleveland.com. <laughs> I would argue that it's been a roadmap for Amy Acton and Mike DeWine as to what to close <laughs> next. You know, he does seem ready to... to um, impose even more severe restrictions if people don't start taking heed. Uh, for, for example, on Wednesday, he told businesses that they need to start taking people's temperatures, employees' temperatures, um, every day before letting them into work. And if they have a fever, they need to be sent home. And and you know I, what's interesting about that is we were talking about a week and a half ago because South Korea had instituted yeah. something similar in retail establishments and employers. And the consensus in our office was, well, that would never happen here. I mean, and while I, yes. it's not happening yet at grocery stores, it's happening in employers. I mean, that would, my jaw hit the floor when he said that. You know, every employer should check the temperature of every employee every day before letting them in their building. It's like, man, oh man, that is a, a just a gigantic change. It really right. does feel like um, a science fiction novel sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I don't want to put Andrew on the spot, but he's talked to some legal experts about this who said, you know, they're probably within their rights to do to do this um and anyway to go back to what dewine said he here's another quote from him if we're finding we can't get people to do this we're going to have to go to the next stage which is absolutely close everything down until unless it's essential so that's that's where he stands right now yeah and he seems like he really does not want to do that i mean he's been the leader of the country i keep hearing from people in other states who are really impressed with him and now some of the other governors have gotten ahead. Pennsylvania did a much, a, well, a more draconian shutdown. And DeWine seems like he does not want to do that. We keep getting questions from self-employed businesses like the barbers about what they can do now that they are out of work. They don't really get unemployment because they're self-employed. Is there any aid package in discussion at the state level, at the federal level, that seems like it's going to help these folks out because they're going to be hurting? Well, Lieutenant Governor John Houston has been talking a lot about helping employees and businesses, and the administration has applied to participate in this federal loan program that could provide uh, some help to these small businesses. They could get loans of up to $2 million each. They'd be long-term. They're called economic injury disaster loans, and they'd have an interest rate of 3.75%. And just for anybody who's listening and cares, they gave an, in, uh, an email address where, where businesses could inquire, which is businesshelp at development.ohio.gov. So let's talk about one other ban that the governor instituted, elective surgeries. Why did he do that? Well, really, it's all about protecting healthcare workers, these people who are on the front lines of taking care of sick people. And we, of course, do not want them to get sick. They need things like masks and gloves that are in short supply. So they want to preserve those uh, for, for, for those folks. DeWine was also helpful this week in stating pretty clearly what he is not going to do. Andrew, we were fielding questions left and right Sunday night and Monday for people who were sure that the state was going to be on lockdown for two weeks. Your story debunking that was among the most read on our website this week. And about 
30 minutes or so after you published it, DeWine started a briefing in which he addressed bad rumors head on. What did he say about the rumors and about locking down the state? So what he literally said was, if it sounds too crazy to be true, it probably is. And Although I would have argued that the fever check <laughs> is too crazy to be true. I think that some of the versions of that rumor that were circulating uh, were causing people to wonder if grocery stores would be closed or if banks would be closed. Um, and uh, another issue that keeps coming up, and DeWine has addressed this during these uh, press conferences, is that there are rumors about the National Guard being mobilized. And I think that that feeds into like people's uh, conspiracy theories about the National Guard being deployed and like martial law being imposed and that kind of thing. And so the governor actually... On Wednesday, I think he's trying to soft land this a little bit so that people aren't alarmed. But he said the National Guard may be deployed, but it would be to set up tents outside hospitals and to deliver aid and things like that. Kind of like uh, uh, in Ohio, when we've had some of these really bad tornadoes, for example, or floods, the the National Guard has helped out. But as far as uh, the story goes, I mean, at that time, like you said, there were some looming closures. But the way that people were expecting is that almost like, you know, Later today, it's all going to shut down. We're going to be quarantined in our homes for the next two weeks. And that just wasn't the case. And people are hungry for it. We have another story up um, since, I guess, last night that says holding your breath to test for the coronavirus doesn't test for the coronavirus and drinking lots of water won't prevent the coronavirus. The, the social media, as people sit home, are going kind of crazy. And hey, I, I didn't prepare you for this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. We've been immersed in this for for a while now. I mean, it really hit heavy on uh, Saturday and Sunday. So we've had almost a week of, of serious change of culture in America. What, let me start with you, Jane, and then Andrew. What, what is your takeaway? What's a perspective that you have now um, that you didn't have when this started? How has this struck you? It, it's just... I've never experienced anything like this in my life. And I've been a journalist like, what, 40 years now? And I've, I've never covered anything like this, even 9-11. It, it's, I mean, that was life-changing, obviously. But I think we're going to look back on this and, you know, we're going to have I survived T-shirts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be working from home for the rest of the time. Andrew, how about you? What what are you? What's striking you about about this? Because this is this is such a different atmosphere we're all in. What what is surprising you about it? What are you taking away from it? So I'm a millennial, and I remember uh, September 11th, 2001, very well, which was one event that I think kind of shattered people's uh, sense of confidence and stability in the world and that kind of thing. And then I also graduated from college during the Great Recession. So I've kind of like, this has been the backdrop of my life a little bit. Um, And even so, as somebody with that perspective, uh, it's been... uh, I think people still had, had an additional sense of security that basically things like uh, sports would just happen. I mean, I remember I was really looking forward to the NCAA March Madness that I can always go out and hang out with my friends. Um, and, and so I think that uh, a lot of that, uh, again, the expectation of just that certain things in our life are going to happen. I think it, it shows that it's not necessarily a, a guarantee. And I, I do think that people are going to look back on this in the future. I think it's going to have generational impacts that we can't necessarily fully appreciate in part because we're living through it and it's early, but also because we don't know how this is going to turn out. Although we do have precedent. I mean, we did have the Spanish flu and, uh, you know, talking to my dad. But none who of was us a, were a alive during World War II. 
<laughs> yeah, I know, but but you've talked to grandparents and things. I mean, if when I talked to my dad about what it was like living through World War II and all the rationing, and that was a pretty big cultural shock. This is we haven't had anything like it, it you know, probably since then. I guess you could argue the nuclear scare of the early '60s. Uh, but but this is going to be for for many generations the the cultural shift. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. Anyway, this is a good time for a uh, break. Andrew and Jane, thank you for putting up with the technological difficulties here and participating in this. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll get it even smoother next time. <laughs> Thanks. I hope we sounded okay. See you guys. I'm I'm enjoying uh, the social interaction. This is great. <laughs> in a moment, we'll go deep on the medical side of this thing and try to understand why a virus you don't have can stop you from getting married. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, we're back, but we're actually doing another recording session so that we can bring in two new guests. Let's do a check. Laura, are you there? Yep. Annie Nikoloff, are you on the line? I am. And Emily Bamforth, how about you? I'm here. Okay, great. It still works. Emily, we're starting with you. Shouldn't we say Dr. Emily? She's done so many stories this week on the medical side of the virus that I feel like she's become our resident medical expert. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I just play one in the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So testing for the coronavirus was all the buzz this week. It started over the weekend with the announcement that the Cleveland Clinic and university hospitals would collaborate on a Euclid Avenue testing site for people with doctor's orders. The place immediately was swamped. Over a few days, thousands of people were tested and many were turned away because of capacity. Then they opened a second site in Landerhaven. Same thing. So who ended up getting tested, Emily? In that case, it was people who had a doctor's note and were willing to wait. For a ballpark on how many people showed up, the clinic said more than 2,200 people were tested during the first four days, saying that an unspecified small number tested positive. We don't know what that unspecified small number is. Uh, they won't tell us how many actually tested positive at these sites for privacy reasons. I saw on Reddit this morning, one of the nurses that was doing this had posted a picture along with the number they had done in their shift. And basically, they were moving one person a minute through that site. She looked exhausted. I mean, these people really put it in. And Emily, you found a video online of the actual test. And my God, it was gruesome. They shoved that swab so far up your nose. It seems like they're trying to get some of your brain matter. Why do they have to go so deep? Yeah, that was um, that was something definitely made me uh, not want to go get tested for that. Um, but somebody posted a video on TikTok and they basically use what looks like a giant Q-tip. Um, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the region that they're trying to reach, but think of where the nasal tract meets the back of the throat. That's where those cells tend to collect. Uh, so they have to reach back there and grab a significant swab. Uh, it's quick, but it definitely isn't comfortable based on what I've read online. So, uh, yikes. On so that you one. you'd really have to kind of balance your need to know that you have it against the kind of agony of that testing moment. I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure I need to know. I, I'd rather keep my nasal cavity intact. After a few yeah, days. I don't, I don't know about that. After just a few days though, the clinic in the UH parted ways, it seems. Landerhaven testing facility became for UH patients only. The Euclid site became just for clinic patients. And the clinic said it would only provide tests for people 61 and over. So why did they switch? 
In terms of the separation, we're, we're not so sure. In terms of the testing restrictions in the state briefing yesterday, the idea that was repeated is that testing has a capacity and most likely if you think you should have it, you should just stay home. It's not something that you need to go out and get tested for. If you take the appropriate steps, call your doctor and stay home. Um, testing isn't needed. And so I know it doesn't sound like the most proactive thing to do, but it, it does seem like the best bet. If you have an underlying condition or you think that this could start getting more severe based on your health history, that's a different story. And that's kind of what I think they were trying to set up as a difference. And there's one other place in Cuyahoga County that is doing testing, correct? Yeah. Metro Health is also doing that. Let's talk about Metro Health a minute. As I mentioned last week, they provided support for the 24-page coronavirus section we produced in the Plain Dealer Sunday. Anyone can get it free electronically. They also support our coronavirus page and have provided us with some pretty good content for it. But I would argue that the most important thing Metro has done in the past week is starting a hotline for people who have who think they have the virus. Emily, who answers those calls? And for the people listening, what's the number and the hours they can call? Well, if you're driving, you're going to have to play this over again. But if you're not, get ready. That phone number is 440-592-6843 or 440-59-COVID if you need something else to remember it. And that's a 24-7 hotline. So who's answering the calls? Uh, those are, I actually don't know. Oh, okay. It's, it's, <laughs> they, they, they sent a release that saying they're adding a bunch of doctors and nurses to it. We uh, started, we started something that's a cousin of the hotline. It's a, a text messaging service in which we send out three or four coronavirus alerts a day. And it's also a way for people to message us their concerns or suggestions or questions. In less than a week, we're about to cross 8,000 subscribers, and they've sent us well over 1,000 messages. A bunch have been medical, and we send all of those to the Metro hotline. So, Emily, how many calls has the hotline gotten? Do you know? Based on the most recent numbers from yesterday provided by Metro Health, more than 1,800 calls to the hotline since it launched Friday morning. Calls then can get converted to telehealth get converted to telehealth appointments with a doctor. So that idea, again, of consulting with your doctor before you try and go get tested. Resulting from those calls, there were about 783 appointments with a physician made. Wow, that's huge. Okay, let me give out the number again, 440-592-6843, or easier to remember, 440-59-COVID. So let's move on to some of the other stories you've been doing, and there are a ton. So rapid fire. First, we keep getting questions about how long the virus lives on different surfaces. Uh, three hours on plastic and steel, four hours on copper or in the air, one hour on cardboard, though all of this could change with more research. It's a preliminary study. We should be surrounded by copper, but let's keep the rapid fire going. <laughs> Next, why should an increase in why should I increase the humidity in my house and how high? Humidity could pre help prevent the spread of the virus based on research on the flu. Let's make sure that's clear. But maybe skip turning on your heat for long periods of time. It's getting warmer outside, so that's helpful. Use a humidifier with a clean filter or run a hot shower to get some steam. It honestly, it can't hurt and it's going to help your nose and throat either way. Just be careful not to turn it up too high. That's when mold grows. And also 
make sure you're cleaning your surfaces in your hands. Okay, people are worried about getting the coronavirus from their food, especially takeout. If they heat or reheat their food, what temperature is safe? Well, 165 degrees is a universal safe temperature, but that's going to be gross because it's going to dry out your food and it's also going to be unnecessary. So again, focus more on the social distancing, cleaning and hand washing. But if you are concerned, go ahead and check out our story on the different temperatures that you need to cook your food. The guidelines, they're out there. Yeah, a lot of people were, were asking questions about this. That's why we asked you to do the story. So we have really bad air quality some days in Cleveland. And now we learned that that and smoking and vaping are bad when it comes to the coronavirus. How come? Again, not a doctor, but injury to the lungs makes you more vulnerable. We know that. Tobacco research has established this causes injury to the lungs. Bear, a bad air co- quality also causes injury to the lungs. Re- research is kind of more spotty on vaping, but doctors think it could likely be a risk factor in the same way. So if your lungs are compromised or damaged or scarred, even if you're an ex-smoker, sometimes you lose some of that lung capacity, that might put you more at risk. Talk to your doctor to find out more. You sound like an infomercial for uh, something. Okay, one more (laughs) from me. Having high blood pressure, uh, that's another risk factor. I'm going to sound like an infomercial again because I'm going to say consult your doctor about how to best handle this, especially as new research comes out on different blood pressure medications and the way that this actually works. But experts are seeing that hypertension could be a leading factor when it comes to deaths from the coronavirus. That's in preliminary studies as well as comments from doctors on the ground in China. That could be for a number of reasons, but... uh, Basically, underlying health conditions, many of which have hypertension as as an indicator, make it more dangerous to get coronavirus. So uh, if you think you might have high blood pressure or you know you do, keep an eye on it and make sure that you're taking care of yourself. All right. I'm not going to make you explain why type A blood makes you vulnerable. And I'm not going to make <laughs> you explain why the very latest says that millennials actually are at serious risk of this when for months we've heard they're not. But we do have the final Jeopardy question where you can make the big money. A tough one. <laughs> the new shingles vaccine works differently for most vaccines in that it boosts the very immune T cells you need to battle viruses. The bad news is not this virus. Uh, This is my favorite because I get to sound fancy, but really I've cribbed everything from an (laughs) immunologist that I've talked to. But basically, here's how I understand it. As you age, the number of cells that trigger your immune system to fight off viruses, so CD4 or T cells, declines. Uh, The most recent uh, shingles vaccine, Shingrix, boosts that number and teaches them to go after the shingles virus. It's making you even more effective against fighting this virus. But there's a key part to it, and this is where the immunologist comes in. That teaching part is key. You can have those CD4 cells, but if they don't know to sound the alarm, your immune system won't go after it the same way. All right. Yeah, way I to was go, really Emily. disappointed because I went through hell on the, uh, the second part of that vaccine. And when I thought, well, if it works, I'll be, but no such luck. <laughs> All right, Emily, pick up your prizes on the way out the door. 
Hold on, hold on. We're not done with Emily just yet. Just the rapid fire part. We need to talk about home health aides. We have had a lot of questions from people about this. Why don't home health aides have to wear masks and gloves when they go into homes? They deal with the most vulnerable populations. And if any one of them gets exposed, they can then transfer that to everybody they visit. What's the deal with this? I'm glad that this part is in rapid fire because this is a more complicated question and we don't have all the answers on this yet. So while it's recommended that these home health aides learn to use masks, gloves, and other protective gear correctly, uh, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. We already have some conflicting advice on masks. Um, we have to be wary that there is a limited supply of the masks that work. But what's funny is that these professionals who work with very, very vulnerable populations aren't in the groups that are commonly identified as needing these masks when state officials talk. Um, and so it's it's very complicated. And these people are kind of on the front lines. I actually talked to my mom about this. She's been a home health care nurse since I was in fourth grade. And she doesn't have to wear a mask. She said that if um, a patient requested one, she would, of course, put one on, but they don't have N95s regularly. And um, they always sterilize their equipment. They have germicidal wipes. Um, but she it hasn't been a thing. They've, they've obviously given out um, recommendations and they're talking about it. But as for she she said she understands why people would be wary because she's going in between these vulnerable populations but so far they haven't gotten direction from the state on having to wear a mask this is um one of those things that maybe mike dewine just hasn't gotten to yet right he has methodically shut down a lot of the things that could spread it is is there any suggestion that he might get to this in his next set of steps to be honest no idea but based on what happened um with elective surgery where he issued kind of this broad recommendation and then experts came in and narrowed down exactly what was happening. It could happen, but right now we don't know. I think the problem is that that those masks, those are the very short supply. I mean, they're asking for donations from veterinarians at this point. So um, I don't know that they're going to ask more people to wear them. It'll be interesting to see though. We've have not been able to foresee everything that's been coming down the line. Um, Annie, you have been on the line now being very patient. So you're up. Let's deal with weddings. Just as you were reporting on decisions that soon to be brides and grooms were facing, you learned Cuyahoga County had canceled wedding licenses. I did a double take on that. Why? Yeah. So um, earlier this week, they suspended the issuance of new wedding licenses and, um, Apparently, it was posing a danger to probate court workers. It's to keep people safe. It's to keep people out of the building. Um, they're trying to limit the amount of people coming in and out of the probate court, and suspending marriage licenses was just one way to do that. How long can that go on, though? I mean, this is a basic government service. Are people really supposed to stop getting married for months? I mean, there's been some estimates that we'll be dealing with a lot of these these different methods of, of battling coronavirus for the better part of a year. So does that mean all these people that are madly in love and want to start their lives together are on hold for that time? So right now, we don't really know how long it's going to last. They're kind of taking this thing day by day. But I do know that they're looking into some web, web and video-based solutions to get people doing virtual meetings. Um, I'm hoping to hear more about how those things are coming along. I'm hoping to see that that does develop so people can actually get married. Love in the age of coronavirus, <laughs> the disease standing in the way. <laughs> 
So your bigger story about what people are doing showed some people struggling with the decisions. Wedding days are, are way up there in the importance in your life, the day you're born, the day you marry, the days you have kids. Now people have to wait. What did you learn from those people? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been really devastating for a lot of couples, not just emotionally. I mean, people can lose deposits. They could lose combined health coverage that they might need from combining their insurances. Um, and of course, they have to come to terms with just having to wait to finally do something that a lot of people have been planning for years. Um, and this goes beyond couples. I mean, it's not just the people who are in love who are challenged by this. When you think about all the moving parts of a wedding, there are photographers, wedding planners, DJs, venue owners, and florists. I mean, they're they're all going to be out of work and affected by this. I know a lot of people are losing out on money because things are getting pushed back. A lot of freelancers don't know what to do right now. If I really want to get married, I can move my wedding to another county, one that is granting licenses and do it there, right? If, if part of the licensing is you get you can get the license in the place you're getting married. Right, you can, uh, but you can't have a crowd bigger than 50 unless it's in a church, and a lot of churches are not doing it right now. Interesting. I guess we're going to have to see what happens as this continues. So coronavirus is in the way of true love, huh? Uh, hopefully not. Some people are hoping it'll bring some people closer together. Uh, Troy Smith recently reported that Dr. Oz is advocating for people to have sex to deal with coronavirus anxiety, so there is that. <laughs> Okay, then moving on, you and your colleague Mark Bona jumped into action Sunday after the governor announced he was shutting down restaurants and bars. You and Mark deal with a lot of the people who operate these places, which are small businesses. They're being crippled by this. Yes, they are. A lot of restaurants and bars are super concerned by this. Uh, they depend on large gatherings of people to gather inside of their businesses, and they are unable to do that right now. Um, you know, fast food joints seem to be a little bit less affected at this time. Takeout places seem less affected at this time. It's those places that depend on in-person diners that are closing up shop right now. So they could still provide meals for takeout and delivery, though. A lot of them are trying to stay afloat by doing that. The governor and lieutenant governor have, have asked people to get takeout and delivery to help them. Yeah, um, a lot of restaurants are who are normally only dine-in are pivoting um, and they're offering takeout for the first time ever. Others aren't able to stay open. Like right now, Barrio laid off all of its employees. It's looking into takeout options, but for now, all those people are unemployed um, and all Barrios are shut down, as an example. Yeah, you got the feeling that some of the, the owners shut down specifically so their people could get un unemployment. I do wonder how many go out of business before things go back to something resembling normal. These are people that operate on a thin margin. They still have to pay their rent. They still have to pay their 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 loans for their equipment, but they have no money coming in. Yeah, it's definitely a concern. I've seen some pretty uh, upset people on social media just voicing concerns that they might have to close up shop. Um, already we saw one restaurant close. Uh, it's Spice Kitchen in Gordon Square. They closed for business. Uh, hopefully the, the owners of that space are going to open a new restaurant concept there. Uh, but Spice Kitchen is gone. So. so many of us are working from home. We can't eat out. Our kids are home. The results, a run on grocery stores. And the shelves have been cleared for many days. Yeah, reporter Pete Kraus did a story on that showing that the food supply is actually very ample in Ohio. We don't have a danger of shortages, but people are still hoarding food. So when you go to the grocery store, you see empty shelves. Mike DeWine said very clearly he intends to keep food stores open 
and pharmacies for the duration. Yeah, one food place where food is not plentiful is with the needy, and the food bank has been hammered by the virus. I wrote a piece about how they activated an emergency plan. They had 1,400 volunteers call off in one week, and those volunteers are the people who pack the food for the needy. Now the governor's saying he's going to send in the National Guard to help. Yeah, and the Red Cross is in trouble, too. They need blood. It makes sense, but it's just kind of really scary. In the last week, 230 blood drives in northern Ohio were canceled. That deprived the Red Cross of 6,500 donations. Places where they normally hosted, like at businesses, schools, and churches, they have all closed, and people are scared to give blood. But the need is still there, so that's a big problem. All of these concerns, the new normal of working from home, the fears about food supplies, worries about the virus, they mean people are dealing with a lot of anxiety. So we ran a piece on that. Emily, what's the takeaway? And yeah, this is something that I've been seeing on social media pretty much consistently is people worried about what this means for their new normal. And so some of the tips that we had was you have to create that routine. And that's not just the routine of waking up, going to your computer, working, staring at a TV and going back to sleep. Uh, You have to do things that are stress relieving, like exercising, maybe doing some outdoor activities, not helpful with the rain that we've been having, but uh, doing the best you can, trying to get away from screens and unplugging, a good time to read a book. Um, But you also don't have to make sure that you are super productive just because you're at home. Um, But the other tip that's important is uh, making sure that you don't feel alone. Uh, There is a loneliness problem that was happening in the United States and across the world before this started, and self-isolation can be that isolating. So uh, using this time to connect with others can really make sure that you uh, don't feel alone um, and you can make sure to connect to your family and your friends, use FaceTime, Netflix party, uh, whatever you want to use. And then the last tip is, as always, stay informed. Uh, which you're listening to this podcast. so Although take breaks from staying informed because you get anxious. We're coming in for a landing. I want to bring it back to where we started with something of a more uplifting perspective. Midweek, a bunch of organizations got together to announce a fund to help the agencies that are so taxed in trying to provide services in this age of coronavirus, including the food bank. Laura, Laura, you wrote that story. Yeah, 18 organizations came together to create a rapid response fund that will give money to nonprofits on the front line like the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. These are the organizations working to help people with coronavirus who have lo- or who have lost their jobs because of the coronavirus. Um, when they announced the group, they had raised $3 million. And a half hour after I published the story, they had raised another $1 million. And they're still raising money. That's what I meant at the top of this episode about it being among our finest hours. I'm in that text message platform all the time. I see it. Most people are being great about this. I mean, they have questions and they have anxiety and worries, but they are looking out for each other. The fact that a brand new fund could get $4 million in just a couple of days, man, that's really what's best about this region. I mean, I said we're being tested and so far we're acing the test. I agree. I think we're going to continue to see people reaching out and helping to try to get something meaningful out of this crisis. Honestly, it's going to be something we'll remember for the rest of our lives. We'll tell our kids and grandkids about the quarantine of the coronavirus. Okay, Emily, Annie, some final thoughts. You've been immersed in this story. What perspective do you have now that you didn't have two weeks ago? Annie, you go first. 
Uh, to be honest, I've been really encouraged that people have been getting creative about this. I've been seeing people, you know, restaurants pivoting to do takeout. I've been seeing uh, musicians offering virtual concerts. I've been seeing a lot of people offer creative solutions in a time that we really need them. And luckily, Cleveland is full of a lot of creative people. So I think that we will start seeing some new approaches to tackling this in the time of coronavirus. Emily. What do you think? Uh, it's as silly <laughs> as silly as it sounds. It moved from something that was theoretical uh, to something that was impacting everybody around me, uh, not just the people who were writing about it. And so I think now just that focus on connection, like I'm reaching out to my grandparents who are isolated, making sure that they're engaged and have new shows to watch, that kind of thing. It's it's definitely moved from like this is something that we think about um, as not affecting ourselves to this is affecting everyone. Laura, what about you? I've just been floored, I think, every time it changes. And we've gone from talking about, we talked about South Korea earlier to saying this could never happen here. And then it does. And it's how quickly it becomes the new normal. I have a schedule for my kids of like hour by hour of what they're supposed to be doing with schoolwork and um, the assignments from class. And so far, they've kind of taken to it. They get their screens at four o'clock. They've been FaceTiming their neighbors. And um, I think it's, it's still freaky when we think how long this might last. I mean, we've only been doing it for four days so far. But um, I think everybody's I think Annie and Emily are right. Everybody really is trying to make the best of it. So I'm impressed. The other thing that I'm really heartened by, and I just saw some research on this this morning, is in this crisis, people have turned to their local media. I mean, we've seen record numbers on our website and our other platforms. Um, and not only that, we're getting bombarded by people thanking us for doing everything we're doing. I'm not going to do the, oh, it's so tough being us because it's tough being everybody. But our team has poured it on since this thing became the crisis it is. And across this country, people are going to their local media, not the national media. They're going to their local media to, to have that community tie. Um, and it's kind of great to be in that role. I'm glad that uh, we're getting so much positive feedback. Okay, that's it. Our first episode in the shelter-in-place era. Laura and I say thanks to Emily, Annie, Jane, and Andrew, and thank you for listening. I think we have a bigger audience this week because of a Facebook thing we're doing. If you're new, we hope you like what you heard. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chris Quinn. We'll be back next week. <laughs>